Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. Because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. On Saturday, March 12th, Lighthousers gathered at the Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design and listened to film guru Alexander Philippe enlighten us on how great scenes become unforgettable in our minds and how great acting, smart dialogue, evocative setting, and other elements interact to make a complete and unforgettable moment. I'm Mike Henry. I'm the executive director of Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Thanks for coming tonight. Uh, Thanks for finding the place. Um, you're in for a real treat, let me tell you. It's my distinct pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight. I am proud to say that he is my friend. Uh, I admire, I adore, and I'm also a little bit envious of him. Um, And I take a lot of my fashion cues from this gentleman. Not as good, though. He's wearing sneakers. I should have wore sneakers. That's terrible. He's one of our regular instructors at our Grand Lake retreat, which is every July. And um, he, we, on Wednesday nights, usually, um, we would show movies, and he would deconstruct them. And so um, when you're hanging out with Alexander up in Grand Lake at you know, 10,000 feet, drinking wine and watching Vertigo, split over two nights, uh, which is probably four hours each night, wouldn't you say, Bill? Something like that? It's, it's just totally fascinating. I mean, he even explained Mulholland Drive to us one year. So it was really it, absolutely amazing. So he's definitely a brilliant and unique uh, creative mind. Um, and, of course, that reminds me of a few stories, so please bear with me. Um, we used to have some wonderful dinners at his house, uh, and they're always really amazing. And uh, one year, and this, my wife Andrea, she says this happened. Um, this is how unique and creative and brilliant he is. He just he was talking, and he grabbed an orange, and she said he just ate the orange like it was a peach, <laughs> without peeling it. But he denies it. Do you deny? You still deny it? Of course he I, still denies it. We were thought we thought it was some sort of French thing, and we're like, wow. <laughs> So for years, I ate all my oranges without peeling it until he denied the story. And I don't remember because we, we had a lot. Sneakers on. With my sneakers on, yeah. Uh, I had a lot of wine, so I don't remember the, the orange incident. So anyways, um, he is the um, mastermind behind such amazing films. <laughs> like uh, these, these titles are awesome. Uh, Miracle Mike, The Headless Chicken. Have you seen it? Chick Flick, sorry. The Story of Miracle Mike. Yeah, chick flick. You know the story of Miracle Mike, right? Got his head chopped off. He lived for 10 months. That was like his early work, but it was, it's just absolutely fascinating. Uh, next, he did a documentary on um, people who only speak Klingon. It, it is a, an invented language, and that was called Earthlings. Fantastic movie. And his most current film is called The People vs. George Lucas, which is going to have a nationwide and worldwide release uh, shortly. So um, if you've... Yeah, it's a great movie. Absolutely wonderful movie. Um, I, I was going to bring my two daughters to go see it at the Denver Film Festival, and then I asked him if that was okay, and he said, well, there's the one... Uh, um, South Park scene where they rape uh, George Lucas, so maybe you don't want to bring your girls. So I, I didn't, unfortunately. <laughs> They'll have to be like 14 before they go see that. Yeah. Anyways, um, and he's uh, hard at work on his next film. Uh, I had to write this title down. It's called The Life and Times of Paul the Psychic Octopus. Octopus. That's hard to say. You know about Paul, right? 
he predicted how many uh, uh, World Cup games? Uh, eight games in a row. Eight games in a row. Sadly, Paul has passed. So it's going to be a posthumous documentary. Um, but uh, you're in for a real treat, so please welcome Alexander Philippe. Thanks, Mike. Okay, so uh, I think the topic today, if I'm not mistaken, is great scenes of the cinema, something along those lines. Uh, but because I take so long to actually deconstruct scenes, we're going to do one of them. Uh, but... Um, I actually do have a kind of a surprise for you. I'm, I'm actually really excited about what I'm going to show you. Um, I don't know if any of you can tell what the movie is just looking at this. I know some of you have been told already, so, so anybody else? Okay, great. Well, we'll keep that as a surprise then. So before we get into it, uh, I just want to just go over a few sort of basics of, of scenes. I mean, I think that's, that's something we should really uh, talk about before we really get into this, this particular scene. Uh, I mean, and, and I want to stress also, this should be a participatory process. You know, I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to stop and start a lot. We're going to pause throughout that 20-minute scene a lot. And if there's anything that you guys notice, anything you want to add, if you want to challenge me, whatever you want to do, please be my guest. I mean, that's, that's the whole process. Okay. So let me actually ask you this question. First of all, what is a scene and how do you guys use scenes? I mean, cause you know, I really don't care if you're a screenwriter or, or, or write, you know, a novel, you're still going to use scenes, right? So what is a scene and how, <laughs> that wasn't fair. <laughs> Okay, yes. Nobody leaves and nobody comes in. Okay, that's interesting because what you're actually referring to is... I'm sorry? That's a French scene, yes. It's... <laughs> Yes, and I can talk about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and in fact, that's, yeah, I mean, you know, you look at the plays of Moliere, and every time a character leaves a scene, uh, or leaves the stage, rather, uh, then you essentially have a new scene. Every time a character enters the stage, you'll, you'll have a new scene. But that's interesting, because essentially what happens here is you have a change of dynamic. Uh, you know, if you have, say, two characters, or three characters, or four characters, I mean, right now, really, this space has a very particular dynamic just by virtue of who we are, of who's here, what's happening within this particular space. And that's essentially a scene. So if, you know, a lion were to come in, that would really essentially change, I think, the dynamic <laughs> of, of the scene. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, I think, in, in this day and age, that it would be a new scene. Um, I think uh, that we can certainly look at certain elements of, you know, what we call unity of time, unity, obviously, of, of location, and also unity of, of, of action. I mean, I think these are the three sort of main unities in terms of defining what a scene is. Um, okay, so I think one of the things that you want to think about when you're, when you're writing, always, is why do I need this particular scene and I'm talking about every single scene that you have, why do I need this scene within my narrative? Right? I mean, do you, ask, do you guys ask yourself this question sometimes? You, you should. I mean, you really should. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a very, very important thing. And so let's talk about, let's think about here for a second, what are some of the elements that would justify the existence of a scene within a greater whole? 
just anybody. Okay, yeah, something has to happen. That's that's yeah, of course. Uh, but something. Okay, but let's go. Let's dig beyond that. Okay, well, that's an interesting one. I mean, I, I agree, conflict is always good. I'm never going to disagree with this. Now, does every single scene need conflict? Character development. Yeah. Action. Advancing the plot. Yeah. Okay, so that's interesting because all of this is true, or I would say rather all of this can be true. It doesn't mean that a scene has to have all of these elements for its ex existence to be justified. I think we need to look at the, this, you know, the, the notion of story. Um, for me, story, you know, it, there's a very big distinction between saying, you know, this happens and then this happens and then this happens. And then saying, you know, event B happens because of event A. And because event B happens, event C must happen. So we're really talking about, again, you know, now we're really talking about, I think, the, 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 the sort of the, the, the crucial thing about storytelling is the chain reaction of events, right? That there is a relationship between moments. And I think if we look at a movie, a scene really is essentially a series of filmic moments, that fulfill a very particular purpose within the greater narrative, within the whole. I think one thing that I would recommend that you do as writers, and again, it really doesn't matter what you write, uh, you know, there's the, the trick of the index cards, which is, you know, very, very helpful when you're trying to structure a piece. I think it's always uh, extremely difficult to think about your piece as a whole. I think maybe Nabokov was about to do it, you know, was able to do it. Maybe, uh, maybe Shakespeare was able to do it, but I sure can't think that way. And I'm, I don't know if too many of you can, you know, can actually think this way, you know, in here. It's just really impossible because when you're dealing with, with, a, with an entire world and it's, it's just overwhelming. So you have to break it down. This is where obviously where structure comes into, you know, comes into play. So you break it down into acts, you, the acts into sequences and the sequences down into scenes. And I think the way to really, uh, look at, um, you know the, the the minutia really of your of your of your piece is to actually write an index card for every single scene that you want to write. And there's two things that you should really write on that index card. Number one, what happens in this scene? So we talked about story event. Yeah, I think ideally there has to be some kind of story event. All right. Number two, what's my purpose? as a writer in this scene. In other words, what am I trying to accomplish dramatically with this particular scene? If you can't answer that question, I would say more than likely that scene has no reason to exist within the greater narrative of your piece. Do great writers every now and then indulge? Uh, yes, they do. Yes, they do. And I'll tell you the one example that, that I think is uh, um, always a bit baffling to me. I mean, it's, it's a good scene. It's a really, it's a really good scene. Um, it's in Fargo, uh, the scene where Frances McDormand meets her, you know, her Chinese friend in, from high school that she hasn't seen in years. And, I mean, it's, yes, on some level, we could certainly argue the scene uh, helps develop her character a little bit. But if you really think about it, the narrative, uh, the, the, the forward momentum um, of the screenplay comes essentially to a halt uh, at that moment so that we can be given some character development. Uh, you know, if it were handled, I would say, by anybody other than the Coen brothers, it probably wouldn't work. 
uh, as it is, it's still, I think, a very acceptable scene, but you could remove that scene, and that was the one thing that Aristotle talked about. If you can remove the scene without affecting the whole piece, then it probably doesn't belong there. Okay. So anyway, that, these are some of the basics. Now, and the reason why I'm, I'm uh, you know, mentioning this, this notion of indulgence uh, is because I think the filmmaker we're about to deconstruct uh, has been accused of that a great deal. <clears throat> um, but that said, I really, I really want to try and show you guys that there's really nothing, nothing indulgent about what he's, what he's doing. So, um, okay. I think it's time for me to reveal what we're about to watch. Um, it's a Tarantino movie. It's uh, his latest, Inglorious Bastards. And uh, don't worry, there's not going to be blood or anything like that. Don't worry. Um, but uh, this is uh, essentially the opening sequence i'm sorry the opening scene it really is a scene even though we go from from outside into into the inside i mean it's, it's a continuous action it's a single scene it's 20 minutes long which by the way is something that you just almost never ever see in movies you know there's this one rule in i mean unwritten rule of course in screenwriting that any scene uh, any scene over um you know three pages is something you should really take a good, good look at as a writer. Uh, you know, if it, if it exceeds five minutes of screen time, it's, it's a real rarity. And, and here we are, we're about to look at a 20-minute scene. So, all right, let's start. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play um, a little bit of the music, uh, obviously leading to the first, uh, the first uh, slate. There's a reason why I want you to listen to the music a little bit, okay? So, here we go. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we've started, you know, this is called film deconstruction. <laughs> so, um, any, anything, anything about the music here rings a bell. It sounds like a Western. Yes, very good. It, and, and in fact, it is a Western, really. It's a war Western of sorts. But let's be a little more specific. It actually... It's really rooted in a very specific subgenre of the Western genre, which is the spaghetti Western. Yes. Okay. So, so we have, you know, he's, we're setting the tone, and this is obviously the kind of stuff that I love about film because it's not just about the writing. There's so many, so many other ways to get people into, you know, into a world, into a scene, and, and here the music is part of it. It sets a tone, but it doesn't just set a tone; it also sets expectations. Right, and this is what we call positioning our audience. And by the way, you you do this as writers as well. You position your audience by working within a specific genre, uh, whether you want it or not. To create a certain set of certain set of expectations. Okay, and of course, your job as a writer is to deliver on those expectations. Uh, ideally, of course, to exceed those expectations. It's not always that easy, as we all know. 
Okay. But so, so in terms of, of setting the expectations, what is Tarantino doing right now? Um, I mean, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, I just heard like five seconds of music. What, what am I supposed to say? Well, let's look at this too. Okay, so we talked about Spaghetti Western. So it's a war movie. It's really a Spaghetti Western set in a time period and a place that is not typically where Spaghetti Westerns take place. Okay. I'm sorry? Ah, what is a spaghetti western? Well, there was a whole uh, movement of uh, you know European, primarily I- Italian westerns, um, really in the '60s. Uh, that was the European response to um, you know to the, the western genre and the western myth, uh, and looking at a much much darker, uh, much darker <laughs> west than uh, you know the, the typical white hat, black hat, uh, you know American western, and they were shutting. Europe, uh, they were typically very, very low budget. Um, they were quite bloody and violent, and um, uh, didn't end well, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, of course, the most famous trilogy is the Men with No Name trilogy. Uh, you know, uh, Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more. Uh, the Good, the Bad, the Ugly with Clint Eastwood, um, followed by Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, which, by the way, is actually what I'm trying to get at here. Uh, there's there's a direct reference here to an iconic spaghetti western, Once Upon a Time in Nazi-occupied France. Okay, who has seen Once Upon a Time in the West here? Okay, what type of story is Once Upon a Time in the West? I'm sorry? In what way? What's the main thrust of the story? What is it about? Revenge. Yes, it's a revenge flick. Okay, it's Charles Bronson as the good guy, Henry Fonda as the bad guy with with the blue eyes, right? Uh, which again, that's the kind of stuff that spaghetti westerns used to do. Is really kind of take those stereotypes and just turn them on on their head. You know, just really great stuff. But what's interesting about Once Upon a Time? in the West is the way that the scene that causes or that triggers the revenge is is introduced. Now, that particular scene in screenwriting terms is what we call the rubber ducky. The rubber ducky is the, is the traumatic event in the character's life, okay, that essentially uh, causes that character to, you know, to behave a certain way, to uh, to go on a journey and avenge himself or herself, for instance, right? So, in the case of um, you know, once upon a time in the West, uh, you know, the Charles Bronson's family essentially gets murdered by Henry Fonda and and his posse, uh, and so, but you know, he is spared. He grows up, and then eventually he tracks. He tracks down Henry Fonda to, to kill him. I mean, that's a very classical type of revenge, you know, story. Um, what's interesting here is that what we're about to see, the scene that we're about to see is the rubber ducky scene. And instead of, instead of uh, working like Once Upon a Time, the West, Once Upon a Time in the West in, uh, really in, in flashback fragments, which is the way that, that, you know, that reveal happens in Once Upon a Time in the West, Tarantino does it completely differently. He's going to give us the rubber ducky as one big chunk. 20 minutes, and then the story is going to begin. So, so that's pretty daring, by the way, uh, you know, to start this way. But uh, let's see, let's see how he does it.
All right, so here's the scene. <laughs> um, so what's what's going on here? Now, you know, it's, it seems like seems like there's not much going on here, but I, I just love the fact that there's already something happening. Okay. <laughs> Clearly, I'm the only one who sees something happening here. <laughs> the man is chopping wood. Yeah, okay. Yes, he is. Okay, the, uh, I actually want to... I'm going to draw your attention now to the way that this particular... Uh, moment is written in the script because this is actually quite telling. Uh, Tarantino writes, the owner of the property, a bull of a French farmer, brings an axe up and down on a, st- on a tree stump, blemishing his property. Hmm. So let's just keep that in mind. This notion of, of something blemishing his property is actually going to be significant in the scene itself. So it's not just a guy chopping wood. That's what I'm trying to get at. We're, I'll, be, I'll be right with you. Tarantino is setting a scene that is, in fact, evocative uh, as it relates to what's going on with this particular character and what is happening within the scene or what's going to happen within the scene as a whole. Yes. There's a what, what kind of sound? A metallic sound that wouldn't be there. Yes, and that's, you know, that's what sound design is all about. You know, there's very rarely sounds in movies, if you really start deconstructing the sounds, they're very, very rarely going to be realistic. But that's an interesting point, uh, because you know, that, that is a, probably a very specific choice made by the sound designer uh, you know, to create a kind of tension that we wouldn't necessarily be used to by you know, just... You know, or that we wouldn't hear with just a guy chopping, you know, actual wood. So he heightens the tension with all those little details. I mean, that's that's a nice point. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely Western looking. Um, it's it's kind of a, on some level, it's a very sort of it's it is an idyllic scene, save for the guy chopping the wood with that metallic sound, <laughs> you know. Um, but let's look at the next shot here for a sec and what's going to happen. Okay, look, look at what's going to happen here. This is really a nice little moment. It's as if she senses something, right? She just kind of... Let's just, let's just go over this again, actually. Now, this is, this is... I'm sorry, but this is really nice. This is really nice. Okay. Look at her gesture, Okay. Right, she senses something. So we start really here. Um, you know, the, the the like I said, it's an idyllic scene. There's a little bit of tension, but immediately now, immediately, 
something is happening. And what I think is so nice is that is that the the forces of darkness i guess we're going to we're going to call them that okay i think we've all figured out by now who is coming it's it's the nazis right uh and the, the forces of darkness are coming from behind the white sheet okay uh we know of course and this is what i love about tarantino because it's kind of like hitchcock that way he knows that we know what to expect from a tarantino movie so if Tarantino gives us a white sheet, we probably know that by the end of the scene, <laughs> there's going to be some blood, right? So, so he's kind of playing on those expectations. But, but um, you know, this, this whole moment of what's going to happen now is just something that... Um, um, I, I, you know, it, it makes me think about two things. It makes me think about uh, Bell Viola, the um, uh, the great. Uh, I, I guess I guess you just call him an artist. I mean, you know, there's a lot of sort of uh, strange um, uh, installations that he does, and. Um, you know museums really around around the world but there's this one exhibit that i that i saw once in new york that just absolutely fascinated me and it's 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 on a screen and you're seeing this this little dot <clears throat> and then the dot gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then it's this one eventually you realize it's somebody walking very slowly towards you and then you know it takes about 10 minutes for this person to essentially fill the frame and then he just stops. And then there's a drop of water. It falls on his head. And then another drop. And then it picks up speed slowly, slowly. And then eventually it's kind of a, you know, just a rush of water. And then he just dissolves. And then it starts again. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of loops about every 20 minutes. And it's, I mean, it's hard to, to kind of... Um, to tell you about this without actually you experiencing it because it's absolutely riveting. The one thing that maybe you've experienced that would be similar is watching, you know, uh, praying mantis uh, mating. You, you know what happens? The, the the female cuts, chops the head of the of the male, and um, I think eats it. I mean, it's it's pretty revolting stuff, but but it's revolting in a way that you just can't stop watching. You know what I mean? You are just kind of entranced by this thing. And I think, you know, this is what's happening here. Instead of just doing this, you know, uh, uh, starting the scene later with the Nazis already there, Tarantino starts the scene way, way, way early. Not only that, but he's going to give us the Nazis like way down the road so that we can just see them very slowly, slowly coming towards us. And, you know, that I think is, uh, I think it's bold and I think it's a really great way to, to sort of get us into this, into this scene to build the tension. So obviously, you know, any story really is about is about uh, putting questions in the mind of the audience or the readers, and really not answering those questions <laughs> until 
you know, as late as possible. Or if you're going to answer a dramatic question, uh, you better make sure that that by answering that question, you're going to create other dramatic questions because that's really what keeps us turning the pages. That's why we keep watching a movie. We just want to know what happens, right? I mean, it's it's a very basic principle of storytelling. Okay. So so far, what are the questions in our mind? Yeah. Yeah. Why are the Nazis coming? Let's let's talk about the the, uh, the French farmer here as well. I mean, what's his demeanor right now? Yeah, he's spooked. Um, I mean, clearly there's there's something there's there's something going on. There's something wrong. Yeah. Yeah, he's expecting he's expecting that it's not going to be easy, right? So it's it's all of these kind of uh, little things that are really left unsaid that put together create again this amazing tension, uh, you know, around this particular scene. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the the you know, and again, if you just look at you know what one of the thing, one of the um, uh, images that I use a lot, you know, when I when I talk about storytelling is is you know, if you ask me what a story is, I, think I always say you know, it's it's if you look at a still lake and then you throw a pebble or a rock in, into that lake, then it creates ripples. But but the the moment essentially prior to the story, prior to the inciting incident, is is a still lake. You know, in order for the story to begin, something has to happen, right? But but what's so nice about this particular movie here is that really as you, what you're saying here is that the first frame is that still lake. And boom, the story begins. I mean, we're not wasting any time, you know, to start building on this. And you're right. You're right. Now, look at... Uh, th this is actually interesting, what he's about to do here. Because he, he takes his... Um, look at this. He's just... This is a this is a hard one for me because you haven't seen the film, but but he's I mean he's not just dabbing himself right he's clearly smelling it isn't he, right? Um, well okay my you'll remember a character by the name of Shoshana we'll see we'll see her towards the end of the scene. My little theory here is that this uh, you know handkerchief actually belongs to her, and that he had an affair with her. And he knows that he knows that she's a goner, basically. So I think I mean you know this is my little theory. Okay, I'm, I'm not saying it's it's the truth, but you know you want to really look at the little details of of the acting, of the behavior of the characters, um, because that could tell another story. Who is her? Shoshana, the 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 the, the lady that I just mentioned. I, like I said. Well, like I said, that's you're going to see her at the very end of the scene. So I, I just want you to remember that. I don't. I don't want to. You know. I don't want to give it away yet. Yes. Um, the score so far is a treaty mash of the sweet 
Yes. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's probably Tarantino's sense of irony. <laughs> uh, you know, the the four Elise uh, uh, piece is really is re- really a romantic piece, um, and uh, we're about we're about to get violent. You know, so yes. Absolutely, absolutely. No, absolutely, and it's it's actually what I call the sick rose uh, syndrome. Um, th- this is my absolutely all-time favorite poem um, by William Blake. Uh, I think we, we we can all learn a great deal from this um, from this poem in terms of of dramatic writing and structure and, and storytelling. Um, the invisible worm, in, in the case of Inglorious Bastards, being the Nazis coming towards us. It's it's you know this this the, the the rose being this really sort of again idyllic beautiful thing being invaded now um by this force and i think one way to look at storytelling is two antagonistic forces coming together right whether you want to look at it as good and evil i mean however you want to look at it it's this you know these two trains coming from very very far away picking up speed picking up speed picking up speed and wham I mean, that's, that's, you know, it's pretty riveting stuff, <laughs> you know. And, I mean, you know, just, just read this poem, you know. I look at, look at it. Um, it's, it's, you know, I'm still not sure really what it's necessarily about, but I think you, you can see this a lot in, in movies. I mean, you've got your protagonist, the rose, the invisible worm, the antagonist, flies in the night. We're starting to get a sense of, of place. It's very active, right? Um, in the howling storm, I mean, it's extremely just the whole setting is, is so dramatic. Uh, the story goal has found out by bed of crimson joy. I mean, the, the whole, the whole idea, the whole, uh, you know, the drive here, the invisible worm is, is, is to, is to destroy the rose and his dark secret love does, does, does thy life destroy. Um, so that I think is a really nice representation of sort of forces of, um, of antagonism. All right, let me uh, let me get this back on track. <laughs> All right. And you know, it's it's really almost like um, I, I mean, I, it's, to go back to what you were talking about, you know, just coming from behind the white sheets, it's it's almost a uh, you know, it's it's a sort of rape. It really is, you know. And uh, and we're going to see this now. The white sheets, and then there's going to be another motif, very similar to the white sheets that we're going to see in a bit.
You know, of course, that particular shot, well, we just missed it, but um, um, you know, there, there, there's certainly a lot of tension in that shot, you know, with, with the axe in the foreground. Um, it's just, it's really, really beautifully directed. And the, the demeanor of the character, you know, every single action, all the stuff that's that's not said, we ha we still have no idea really what this scene is about or what's going to happen. But every single moment, every character behavior, uh, the daughter spilling the water, uh, you know, hastily trying to get back, uh, the father telling her, don't rush. Uh, the way that he splashes water on his face and his chest, everything adds to that buildup of, of tension. And again here, see, this is, this is a really nice shot. You know, the... Um, <clears throat> Uh, officer, I'm um, uh, sorry, Colonel uh, Landa here, who's our our bad guy. Um, let me just go through that shot again here. But we're we're just you know we're going through. We have this dolly shot through the the white sheets, and he's again sort of appearing now. He's entering the world of the French farmer through these white sheets. I mean, it's, again, we can look at it as almost kind of an implied, an implied rape of that particular space of those particular characters. Uh, this is also something that Hitchcock used to do quite a bit, interestingly enough. Um, we, have, um, we have a bad guy, uh, but um, he is ambiguous in the sense that, and you're going to see this quite a bit, he's actually a very pleasant fellow. In the way that he behaves, he's extremely polite, overly so. Uh, he is all—I mean, I would—I would argue certainly as riveting as watching a praying mantis <laughs> uh, on on a certain level. Um, but what this does also, and I think this really adds to the discomfort, um, uh, you know, for us as audience members, because one of the things that we do when we enter the world of a story and we start meeting characters, we instantly start creating allegiances you know we 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 get on the side of this particular character of this particular character or against this one you know and, and as writers of course we give hints usually about what which characters are likable or should be likable and which ones are not or less likable um, what's tricky here is that uh, we certainly relate probably more with but we are equally fascinated by Hans Landa, who is going to be strangely likable. And that just adds again to the discomfort of watching this scene uh, unfolding.
put them in the systems number, number six. Number six. If we run security loan, that is so, you know, it's it's interesting because one of the reasons I've I've picked this particular scene to show you is there's we're going to see a lot of um, small talk, uh, a lot of sort of you know seemingly mundane moments, a lot of politeness. Uh, which are, of course, filled with, you know, with with subtext. You know, typically, dramatically speaking, that's a killer. I mean, you know, you just want to get to the point of your scene and and get out. Um, but but, what's the point really here of introducing us to the three daughters? And what's the point of Hans Landa just saying, you know, your daughters are all more beautiful one than you know than the next? Yes. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like the mafia calling you and, and saying, you know, oh, you have a beautiful family, don't you? You know? <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> you know, it raises the stakes for Perrier. And it's what's interesting here is that we still don't know what is going on. We know there's something going on, absolutely no doubt. We still don't know. And this actually contradicts slightly, because we're going to, to know fairly fairly quickly, but slightly contradicts the you know Hitchcock's theory of suspense of you know what we call the bomb under the table. And I'll just read you real quick a paragraph from Hitchcock about about that because this believe me, we're gonna have a bomb under the table, so to speak. I mean it's not gonna be a bomb, but there's gonna be something there. Um, and so Hitchcock says this. He says, let's, let's suppose that there's a bomb underneath this table between us. Nothing happens, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's an explosion. The public is surprised, but prior to this surprise, it has seen an absolutely ordinary scene of no special consequence. Now let us take a suspense situation. The bomb is underneath the table, and the public knows it, probably because they have seen the anarchist place it there. The, public's, the public is aware that the bomb is going to explode at one o'clock, and there is a clock in the decor. The conversation, I mean, sorry, the, the public can see that it is a quarter to one. In these conditions, the same innocuous conversation becomes fascinating because the public is participating in the scene. The audience is longing to warn the characters on the screen, you shouldn't be talking about such trivial matters, there's a bomb beneath you, and it's about to explode. In, in the first case, we have given the public 15 seconds of surprise at the moment of the explosion. In the second, we have provided them with 15 minutes of suspense. The conclusion is that whenever possible, the public must be informed, except when the surprise is a twist, that is when the unexpected ending is in itself the highlight of the story. So, so what I'm trying to say here is that this, in a sense, contradicts Hitchcock's theory of suspense, because I think we can certainly say this is a suspenseful scene, but we don't know yet what it's about. It doesn't quite contradict it in the sense that eventually Tarantino is going to have to give that to us. He's going to have to provide that bit of information. Yeah. Yep. 
It's what? Yes, exactly. And it's it's the the point is I mean we it's we certainly know what the Nazis represent. And and we probably have a sense of what they're here for. I would say we can take a wild guess and we'd probably get it right. So in a sense I think that this, this the concept of the idea of the bomb under the table it's it's already here because the Nazis at this moment now are carrying the suspense. They're the bomb about to explode. You know, the moment they enter the scene, it's like we're walking on eggshells. Okay? But that suspense is going to be transferred to different elements within the scene, and that's what we're about to see. Yes? Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. No, it's not. No, no. Well, but hold on, hold on. I'm sorry? That's. <clears throat> no. Okay, but hold on. You're. Yes, but 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 specifically within the scene, what I'm trying to say is we still don't know really what's going to happen. But you you just made an important you made an important distinction between mystery and suspense. You say there's no mystery, and I agree. There's no mystery. I'm talking specifically about suspense, and this is what Hitchcock was, you know, being very specific about, is that mystery. Once the mystery is solved, who cares? The reason why we're riveted and we're watching this scene now is because of the suspense. We know, we don't know what's going to happen. I think we know for a fact something bad is going to happen. What makes us watch it is how it's going to happen. That's really, I think, what drives us. Does that, does that answer your question? Okay. And see, this actually totally fits the model of what Hitchcock was talking about. Um, because there's a quote-unquote bomb under the table in the sense that, that some, you know, something is about to happen, even though we don't quite know what this is, um, we can get away with just about anything now. We can get away with small talk. We can get away with, can I have a glass of milk? Oh, you know, uh, yeah, I'll have this much. You know, because, I mean, really, really, uh, because we know something is about to happen. It's like, it's like watching the, the scene in Jaws uh, where they're stuck in the boat, you know, this wonderful, wonderful scene, and they're... Um, uh, you remember the, the whole monologue about the USS Indianapolis, and you know the, the scene just takes on so much suspense because I mean, first of all, it's a beautifully written scene. That's one thing, but the reason why it works so well in terms of suspense is because there's a shark, and the shark could come out at any time. That's the bomber to the table. I mean, this is you know again, it's very, it's exactly the same concept. And so now Tarantino is going to milk these little moments. 
right? As much as possible so that we're going to keep being on the edge of our seat. It's, 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 it's really hard to watch. the directing all the you know the little glances and look at the way he drinks it See, that's what I'm talking about, about being really uncomfortable. Uh, because you want to you you laugh at the guy, but then the moment you laugh, you realize what's really happening. And, and it makes you completely uncomfortable. Yes? It just seems to take right out of the This does? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Which, uh, which scene are you talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's not my favorite Hitchcock film, personally. I think, I think he had lost it by then. But, uh, but anyway, good point. Um, was, I thought, I thought, didn't I see another hand? No. Okay. Let's continue. You know, it's it's almost. Um, I guess what we're seeing is is kind of a series of of little rituals: the greeting ritual, the milk drinking ritual. Uh, now that we've gone through this, it's you know we're gonna we're gonna move on to the next step, and we're gonna finally find out what this is about. But look at this: we're already five minutes into the scene, and and Tarantino still really hasn't told us the exact reason for Landa to be here on the property. Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. That's that's nice catch. Yeah. Yes. Step out of the house, have the soldiers taken away. 
No, absolutely, and and in fact, we're never we're not going to see the girls again after that, so uh, we can only speculate, you know, what what happened to them. Um, but I, I think the the dramatic progression, considering how much story truly we've been given so far, uh, there's there's a really remarkable forward momentum. I think to to every little filmic moment that we're watching right now. So. So I guess, yeah, Moliere would call this uh, a new scene now. But this being continuous action, we're really, I mean, for my money, we're still within within the same scene. And so, of course, this is certainly a beat, right? There's certainly a change of dynamic. Now we're about to to get some some hard information. Hopefully, we are. Okay, that's interesting too, because when you watch this movie for the first time, you're thinking, oh, this is just a way to, you know, be able to switch to English. And it sounds a bit clunky. It's like, oh, really? Why? Right? But keep this in mind, there's a very specific reason <laughs> why he wants to switch to English now. So it's not, this is not Tarantino trying to find a way out of the French. I just want to say that. Yeah. Yes. That's right. That's right. That's an interesting line. Are you aware of my existence? Um, and and you know, just as just when we thought that we were finally going to get to down to it, right? He is now again creating yet another little ritual. He's going to be asking Perrier Lapadite questions about him in a sort of a very vicious little way. It's another sort of game within the game. Um, and, and, and this is totally Tarantino messing with us. It's like, oh, you thought I was going to give it to you. Yeah, you're just going to have to wait another minute or two. Now the other thing that's 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 nice here, dramatically speaking, is the fact that that we're essentially provided with some exposition, 
right? I mean, everything that we've just heard now is just purely exposition about Hans Landa, who he is, and what he's here to do, okay? But we're not just giving information. You know, I think it's a lot more dramatic to have it this way by having Landa actively, dynamically creating this little vicious game, asking Perrier questions about him, as opposed to just him showing up and saying, I'm Hans Landa, and this is my mandate. You know what I mean? So, so again, dramatically, Tarantino, you know, I think knows his stuff. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. Yes. Go ahead. Oh, you could not? So, I mean, oh. Uh, no. I, well, if we have a sound problem, then that's going to be problematic. You didn't get anything? I mean... You, okay. Well, basically, basically, um, as, as we're going to find out more and more in detail now, he, um, they call him the, the Jew hunter basically. So he is, you know, specifically looking for some Jewish families uh, that, you know, he wasn't able to, to, to find uh, at an earlier date. And there's one particular family, as you're about to see, that he's looking for. So, you know, he obviously makes it sound or, you know, feel like it's just routine. It's a routine check, nothing to worry about. Um, Everything, again, in his mannerisms is very, you know, there's a process, there's a ritual. It's very systematic, right? And so let's just talk about for a second here what is at stake for, for both of these characters. Let's talk about Perrier first. What's at stake for him? Now, I think by now we have a sense that he is hiding a Jewish family that Hans Landa is looking for. I think that's a safe assessment. Okay? So, what's at stake for him? His family, I mean, everything, right? I mean, if he, if he, gets, if he gets caught, he, he will probably get killed. His family will probably get killed. So, basically, the guy's got everything on the line. What about Hans Landa? His reputation. Now, I think from what we've seen of his character, I think his reputation means a great deal to him. I mean, you know, the are you aware of my existence? To me, it's, it almost resonates as if, it's almost as if to say, you know, that's that, my mission is who I am. It's what I'm about. It's, what I, it's, it's everything to me. So what we have really is two characters who are meeting now. That's what I was talking about earlier, the two trains coming from, a, from far away and wham okay but these two trains if you will these forces of antagonism both have absolutely everything at stake yeah uh you know that i'm not sure i i i don't think he is i mean i you know the the movie takes takes a lot of liberties with with history uh a lot (laughs) i mean don't forget it is a revenge flick okay so uh yeah 
it, it's it's actually a very very good film. It's it you know I, it's not for everybody, but it's a very good film. Um, everything clearly here is rehearsed, right? Uh, there's that wonderful little final hesitation before he says the Dreyfuses. That's the family that he's actually looking for. I mean, he's got the names right in front of him, right? They're typed, as we're going to see, on, uh, you know, on his ledger. I mean, they're right there. The whole sort of little game about the hesitation, uh, the pause before saying the Dreyfuses, that's all part of of Landa's great, you know, grand plan, if you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And again, and you know, like I think the, the the milk ritual, you know, is such a is such an amazing one because it's it's you know we're wasting. I mean, if you think at how much film costs, we're you know we're wasting some wasting some serious screen time on Londa just slowly drinking his glass of milk. But that's the that's the thing is that you know the Nazis when they arrived, they carried the suspense. Now suddenly the glass of milk is what is what holds or carries the suspense. And then eventually it's going to be something else. But the suspense kind of gets shifted around within that scene to different you know, people, different elements, uh, different objects as well. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and I'm sure there's, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of historical references as well. Uh but good point. Anything else? Shall we move on? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yep. Hmm. Hmm. That's a nice one. Yeah. Ah. You've seen the film, haven't you? <laughs> okay. And see, that's what I'm saying is, is, is all these beats, right? These shifts of, of dynamic that in a sense almost prevent the, the, the normal flow of the narrative from moving forward 
uh, it's all these little niceties, if you will, that are charged with, uh, with, with, with conflict or with angst. And, you know, I mean, now he's just going to stand up and he's going to get his pipe. Okay, and that breaks the flow of the narrative itself, and it's again just yet another moment that we're going to have to wait. Right, so obviously now, you know, the subtext I think is pretty clear. Someone's very successfully hiding them. Um, I think, uh, you know, clearly he is he is uh, uh, accusing Perrier without accusing him. But now we're seeing the other, another ritual, the pipe ritual, which is going to pay off a little bit later on. Perrier starts it, and then you'll see how Landa, um, you know, responds to it later. Okay, so you, you, we, we've seen now, uh, this is kind of a cat and mouse game, obviously, but you know, we've seen the way Landa perfectly choreographed, if you will, his little hesitations as he was going through his list. Now it's Perrier's turn to, to craft his response. Um, and just, you know, let's just pay attention to how he does it. Okay, so so what is happening now? Look at the camera. Pay attention to the camera. Okay, I, I, another thing I love so much about film, and, and believe me, that camera move is is an extremely, extremely important one. Um, the um, one thing I love so much about film is that is that a particular camera move can actually also tell a story. That's, that's yet another tool that filmmakers have to tell a story. Um, you know, one of the great, I think, all-time great camera moves from, from my money is uh, in Psycho, uh, Hitchcock, uh, when we go from uh, the dead Marion in, in, the, in the bathroom and then slowly drift out of the bathroom into the bedroom to focus on the newspaper that contains the money. Uh, 
And that particular camera move really is is Hitchcock telling us, okay, I've killed your protagonist, now what? Because, you know, this is, you know, the major dramatic question essentially disappearing entirely now. Uh, but that particular camera move is just really brilliant stuff. So here, there's actually something, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily equally good, but it's very, very good what's happening. Let's check it out. Okay, so now we're getting to it. I told you there was a bomb under the table, right? Literally, literally. Um, so, okay, so let's let's just pause for a second and talk about that that first camera move, which is an interesting one. Why are we going from Landa? to Perrier. I mean, why not just stay on Landa and just, you know, tilt down? Why? Mm -hmm. No, that's that's good. It's it's not what I'm trying to drive at, but I mean this is all you know, this is all good. Yeah. The subtext of his. Well, they're they're under they're really under his protection, and I think I mean my argument here is that is that it it raises the stakes for him because currently. Currently, that's you know that that's his struggle. Do I keep protecting them at the risk of my own life and, and my family's, or do I, you know, give them give them you know give it away? Um, and that's that's I think the, the 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 thing that very for me visually really raises the stakes for him as as a character. And we're going to see that, that we're going to transfer that. We're eventually essentially eventually they're going to be transferred from his protection. Of course, to Landa's custody, if you will. Uh, but there's going to be a, a mirroring shot later on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
But, you know, at the same time, I think if you look at the, um, you know, you look at Londa's ledger, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that, that all that basic information, he, he has it. You know, I mean, this is, again, this is just small talk. He's just trying to break Perrier. I'm sorry? Yes. Well, he's trying to break him. He's trying to break him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you. <laughs> it's what? Like people drown. Mm. Oh, that's a nice one. Yeah. All right. Let's keep going. How are we, how are we doing on time, Mike? We're all right. It's been an hour? Are you serious? Oh, we've got to speed up here. Wow. I, oh, wow. Okay. This happens all the time. It's dangerous. <laughs> and we're, we're back, of course, to the milk ritual again. So, you know, and now we're seeing also a repetition in the rituals, a repetition in the ritual of the milk, a repetition in his vicious little game of, do you know how they call me? Do you know what I do? Right? All these little questions that, stuff that we've already, uh, that, we're, that we've already seen, that we're already aware of. But through the repetition now, I would argue that it is the repetition that carries the suspense. And this is, again, totally, I mean, it totally proves Hitchcock's theory of suspense, you know, because we can keep watching this as long as it's, of course, well written, right? We can keep watching the same thing over and over and over again because of the fact that we have the Jewish family under the table.
consider for a moment the world of rapture sin. It's a hostile world to me. If rap were to stamp the key for the remnant, would you greet it with a silver? I suppose I would. Has the rap ever done anything to you to create this animosity you feel toward them? Rats from disease to bite people. Rats were a cause to be on the planet, but that's kind of I propose to you any disease a rat could spit, a squirrel could equally carry. Would you agree? Right. Yeah, I assume you don't share the same animosity with squirrels and people with rats, do you? Think they're both rodents, are they not? And except for the tail, they even rather look alike, don't they? Oy. <laughs> so, so you know, through this, you know, little story now, yet, by the way, another ritual, the story ritual, uh, we're, we're getting a, a, a very clear picture of, of you know, the, the, the danger that Londa represents in the sense that, uh, I mean, he's a very, very uh, dangerous character in the way that he thinks uh, a very very dark character in the way that he thinks I mean he's, he's essentially revealing revealing his game right now but we still you know look at the time that Tarantino spends on all these little moments all these little rituals and we're essentially I mean you know excuse my French but we're just waiting for the shit to hit the fan at this at this stage right I mean that's really what we're waiting for However interesting as the thought may be, it makes not one bit of difference to how you feel. If a rat were to walk in here right now as I'm talking, would you feed it with a sort of delicious one? Or only one? I don't think so. You don't like them? You don't really know why you don't like them. All you know is to find them repulsive. Consequently, a German soldier conducts a search of half-sacred Where there's a hot book, he looks in the bottom, he looks in the attic, he looks in the cellar, he looks everywhere he will hide. But there's so many places in the middle of Okay, so, what's going on here? I'm sorry? I, I can't hear you. Setting him up. Yes, he's setting him up. Do we think at this stage that Perrier knows that he knows? I mean, the whole rat story, I think, is a really interesting way to get at what he's trying to, you know, what he wants to get at. I think it's it's a safe assumption to say he knows and I just want you to pay particular attention to the beat that's about to happen, which I think is one of the all-time brilliant beats that I've ever seen. Because it's, you know, the, I, I think the way um, the way story works, at least suspense stories, is just, just constant tension and release, tension, release, tension, release. Okay, and and Hitchcock was again extremely, extremely good at this. And now we're building the tension. We have these little. You know, chuckles every now and then. You know, which is really a slight release. And and now that we're getting to the moment of greatest tension, we're going to have just an amazing little release. 
However, the reason the field has brought me off my house and asked me and placed me in French cow country today is because it does occur to me. I guess I'm aware of a tremendous shield means are capable of not safe and indignity. May I swap my last Okay, here's the beat, right? And you're gonna you're gonna see it's, it's actually a great moment, but but at the moment where literally Perrier, he he probably has him already, right? If he were to get him to confess right now, it would probably already be game over. What does he do? Can I smoke my pipe now? You know, unbelievable stuff. And yet, once again, we're repeating. A ritual. Every single ritual that we've seen so far has been repeated throughout that whole scene. And, and <laughs> it's great stuff, you know. Um, <laughs> and I, I think really what's going on here is he he knows he knows he already has him. He's just giving him a few seconds to to essentially make his decision right now. I think the game's already over, frankly. And now the pipe, of course, carries the suspense. Okay, and pay attention now to the camera, the slow, slow push-ins on both of their faces. Now we're really getting into it. We're getting to the climactic moment. We're getting into the emotions. And by the way, that's a totally spaghetti western thing to do. You know, the extreme close-ups, we're going to get closer and closer and closer. You know, um, I, I think this is really a testament to Tarantino's, uh, you know, talent, both as a writer and as, as a director, that he can make us go from laughing at that ridiculous pipe moment to, I mean, look at just how dramatically charged this, this moment is. He has just broken this guy, and people are going to die. And that shift, 
happens like that you know i mean that's that's really hard that's really hard to do you know it's um the whole thing i think is just crafted to to perfection And now the music kicks in, and it's and you know it's a very uncomfortable type of m- music. You'll you'll see. And now we understand, of course, the whole switch to French to English. You know, he wanted to make sure, of course, that they didn't un- they didn't understand. That's what I was talking about. Now, essentially, the Dreyfuses have been transferred from being under the cust- the, uh, the protection of of Perilapadit to now being really in the hands or under the feet, if you will, of of Hans Landa. What a creepy shot, right? And just the choice of staying there, down on the ground, right, to watch the the boots of the German officers entering the space. Amazing directing. Look at the choice of angles. I mean, it just gives me the chills. You know, that the to think that a scene <clears throat> can can start so peacefully and end like this. And you know, yes, it's a twenty-minute scene, but I think that the the, the build-up, you know, f- there's that 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 amazing sort of release. Of course, it's a dreadful release, but but the climax, I think, over twenty minutes is. Um, yeah, it's amazing stuff. And this, by the way, is uh, Shoshana. We were talking about her uh, earlier.
And we, and we end, of course, on a shot that mirrors the peacefulness of, of the first one. Um, of course, he says, au revoir, Shoshana, right? I'll see you again. Uh, and he will. <laughs> uh, so, so we've certainly established now, um, you know, what, what we talked about earlier, the rubber ducky. The uh, the traumatic event in, in Shoshana's life that's going to trigger her desire for revenge. Uh, we've established. Uh, well, I mean, she's not really the protagonist. Uh, there's it's more of an ensemble piece. There's there's of course the inglorious bastards <laughs> themselves who are going to show up later on, um, and um, uh, certainly the antagonist has um, uh, now been been introduced. Um, if you want to see him actually get it, just Watch the watch the whole film because he he does get it in the end. Um, do we have any more time, or are we are we done? Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah, and I would I would even go further than that and say it establishes Tarantino as a sadist as well. Uh, but but I'm but I'm actually saying this as a compliment to him. He is being sadistic with us, and you know what? That's actually not a bad thing for a writer to be, in a sense, sadistic with your audience because he. And I'm just I'm just no, but I mean, just hear me out here for a sec. Uh, uh, he he understands so well the craft, and he understands this notion of tension and release so well that he really is toying with us the way that Londa toys with with Peri Lapadit. So that 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 climax is I mean we're just exhausted. When it finally comes out it's like, oh you know, finally in a sense. I mean and and but that's you know that's I think a testament to to um, to Tarantino. And you have to I mean you have to play with your reader. You have to, to play with your with your audience. That's that's part of the game. I mean you're you're controlling the game I think as as a writer. You know. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And also, of course, the way that he 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 uh, he, he uh, involves the milk motif into that particular story is. Uh, do we have like another five minutes for for something or or you, you call the shots, Mike? Because I can. I would like to. Because um, there, there's, there is a. I'd like to show you the scene where Shoshana and um, and Londa actually meet again, and and sure enough, there's a there's a, a milk motif in in that as well, um, and it's it's a really it's um, it's really good stuff. Uh, let me see if I can find it. There we go. All right, so uh, by the way, um, we've got, uh, this is Goebbels right here. Um, and, uh, well, this is another important character, but he's not really relevant to the scene you're about to see. So um, let, me just, let me just play it. I won't stop it, I promise. <laughs> 
Emmanuel, voici le colonel Sessland, sera chargé de la sécurité pour l'enseignement. I mean, I, I hope you're paying attention to, you know, we, he's really using the same principles of, you know, tension and, and, and release and, and uh, you know, little sort of, um, you know, mundane moments that, that are just filled with suspense and, and tension. I mean, it's a very, very similar principles here at, at work. And, of course, the milk motif. 
Totalmente. Y dice, pasivamente. Tu conoces a alguien que es la origen de la posesión del Señor. A la posesión del Señor, por tu vida. A tu vida. ¿Cómo sabes? Yo quiero la vida. ¿Cómo se sentí la atención? No, no, que te quiero la vida, sí. What a great, what a great scene too. That that final little acting moment there, uh, you know that the tension again of there's this one thing I wanted to ask you escaped me you know um, anyway I, I you know I, I hope you um, um, you appreciate at least Tarantino's craft here um, I think it's safe to say that he knows he knows what he's doing you know uh, any uh, any final questions or comments or anything yeah mm-hmm <laughs> <laughs> that, 
that's you know that's a good question but you know that doesn't mean that you can't just sit and watch a film and enjoy it i mean the first time i watched this particular movie uh you know i just enjoyed it you know i just i just really um you know i walked out of the theater feeling wow what a what a great film but then really my question is okay well if i if i felt that way about this movie i want to know what makes it so great at least for me you know and that's an individual thing you may hate that film uh but i you know i particularly find it really really crafty and so that's why i wanted to go back and you know and learn more and i think that's you know you have to be able to wear both hats i think you know and and as a writer you really have to be able to do the same thing you have to be able to to just enjoy uh, you know, either reading or writing, but you also have to be able to observe your own craft and other writers' crafts and and analyze them and see why does it work for you or why doesn't it work for you. I think if you don't ask yourself these questions, I'm not sure how you're going to be able to refine your own personal craft. I think that's a really, really important process. But I totally agree with you. You've got to be able to enjoy as well because if you don't enjoy writing, then, then don't write, <laughs> you know? Okay. Yeah. When contemporary directors, oh, you know, um, I mean, I think Wes Anderson is is extraordinary. I think the Coen Brothers are the best, you know, living, you know, writer director team, really, in America for sure. Um, you know, I'm I'm definitely partial to David Lynch, but that's a whole other. Uh, that that's definitely one you're going to have to to learn to deconstruct <laughs> uh, because that that takes a while, you know. Um, you know, there's I mean that's just you know just a sh- very very short list right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How many things the average movie viewer do you think don't see consciously but pick up on subconsciously? Oh, quite a bit. I mean, I think I think if I'd shown you. Um, you know that particular scene just straight through um i think you guys would have had the same feelings of tension and release and mixed allegiances towards landa as as we discussed you wouldn't have been necessarily necessarily analyzing it you would have felt the scene probably the way that you felt that second scene that i showed you almost uninterrupted so but that's you have to understand that's a direct result of craft it's not something that tarantino just goes and points and shoots i mean yeah obviously you know what i mean but 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 as writers that's also the same thing i mean if you write if you're writing a novel i mean you're like i said you're totally manipulating the audience you know that's why i was praising uh, uh tarantino's sadis, sadism uh you know earlier because that's part of it he is toying with us very very consciously and i think the act the act of of craft is extremely conscious the art you know and you know the images the the stuff that comes to you from god knows where that's not so much a science but i think you 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 know you have to let that stuff come to you and come in and you have to process it but you have to use the craft in order to articulate it in a way that's going to trigger the very specific emotions that you're trying to you know to to trigger from from your readers or from your audience so it's again it's it's both and you have to, you have to do both i think you have to let the magical happen and then you have to work hard to structure it and manipulate it so Okay, I think we're done. Thank you, guys.
for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast. We bring this to you thanks to Lighthouse members and funders and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website at www.lighthousewriters.org.